Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, my goal today is to take a, a look at a section here in Hebrews chapter 12, tied into a, um, a picture in that of a type of Christ by looking at the life of Abel, and then drawing in a little application at the very end. So we'll see how much we get fit in here. We pray that the Lord be gracious in our time and with our thoughts. So let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Lord our God, we come before you this morning uh, as we open your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that nothing that is said or done up here this morning that does not bring you glory and honor. Uh, Lord, we trust that the thoughts that are shared are your thoughts. They're not my own. I pray that you would increase, that I may decrease. Lord, please use this time. Teach us something new about your Son. And may we leave a people uh, that are changed and more in love with you this morning. In the Son's name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, please. I know we're going to pick up in the middle of a thought. But we're going to look at verse 18. Hebrews 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. What in the world is this talking about? What is this relating to? Well, you have to turn with me backwards to Exodus. So keep a finger in Hebrews or, you know, put a bookmark there. We'll be going back there. All right, but turn to me to Exodus chapter 19. What is this scene that we just read about? Well, if you know your stories well about the Ten Commandments, that's what we're turning to. Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, God has pulled the people out of Egypt. They have traveled into the wilderness now, and the Lord is leading them to the promised land. Uh, and they take a little detour to Mount Sinai. And there the Lord is going to talk to his people. He's going to talk to Moses and describe to them and share with them his expectations, his standards. He's going to give them the law. And this is the scene that we find ourselves in now. Exodus 19, verse 16. On the, third, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very heavy, loud trumpet blast. Everybody in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it with fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of the mountain and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they did not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. 
Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. So Moses said, so Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain, and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring up Aaron with you, and the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, and he will break out against them. What an amazing scene. <clears throat> In the Old Testament there, God came down to speak with his people. How many people got to go up and speak with the Lord? One. Moses is the only one invited. And it was, was it like a, a joyful, exciting moment for Moses? Like I said, he was trembling with fear. He was scared. I mean, the mountains on fire and smoke. There's thunder and lightning. Dark blackness, clouds all around it. Like, this is a, a time of fearful reverence to the Lord. The people were trembling. If they even touched the mountain, they were pronounced dead. And and we looked in verse. If you look in verse twenty, it says the purpose of this, that the Lord says, was to keep you from sinning. I instilled fear into you, and respect into you for who I am, so that I might prevent you from sinning and walking away. When Moses went up, what was the expectation? God was there to give commands, to give His law, to give His standards for living. Now turn back to Hebrews chapter twelve. When God approached his people, that was the manner in which he approached them then. But now in Hebrews chapter 12, whoop, sorry, i got to find my spot here. Let's keep reading, okay? So that was verse 18 to 21 that we just read about. Now in verse 22, what do we see? But you have come to Mount Zion, to a heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. All right. You, I'm oh, sorry, joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of the righteous men, sorry, the wind, to be made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and a sprinkling of blood, that speaks a better word than that of Abel's blood. We see a completely different scene here, don't we? This is not a scene of fear. This is not a scene of trembling. This is a scene of joy. Exciting times. And it's a picture of not here on earth. It's a picture of the temple in heaven. The holy place in heaven where we will one day, all of us who are here believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will one day walk into this presence here, and we will see a joyful sight. We will all get to go. Not just one person get to go into the presence of God. We will all get to go into the presence of God. And it's been an exciting time. The angels there, what are they doing? Let's go back there. The angels, all right, are joyful. The thousands upon thousands are right, people. They're singing. This is a great and glorious time. What an amazing thing. And we get to be a part of that. How do we get to be a part of that? It says right there, because of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. See, Jesus is the center of all of this. The reason why we get to enjoy this scene is because Jesus is there. And what did Jesus do? Jesus brought in a new covenant. 
Well, what do you mean, Brian? Well, see, in before, right, you had to do things to earn God's grace. You had to, not necessarily, you had to do things to get your sin forgiven. You had to go to the temple. You had to bring an animal on your half. You had to sacrifice it, all right? But Jesus completed that. He fulfilled the old covenant. We are now in our new dispensation of grace. A period of time where God is choosing to bless us with His Son as a free gift. And this moment was instituted at the cross. When Jesus Christ died for us, God's wrath on sin was satisfied. Our sin was atoned for, forgiven, covered up permanently. Not just a temporary covering that was in the Old Testament of all those animals, but a permanent one. We can now boldly approach heaven and come before God. See, it's no longer a you-do structure, but it's now a structure where Christ did. You no longer have to do because Christ has done it. That's an amazing thing. I, I, I just, I'm so grateful this morning that I live in a period of time where I simply have to trust in Christ and all the work for salvation is done for me. I don't have to do anything else. Just believe. And God chooses to pour out His blessing on all those who believe freely. Now, turn back one page. I mentioned earlier that we can now boldly enter the presence of God. You know, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be that Christ my God should die for me? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. I have a clean and pure conscience now before God. Because my sin is atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Back to chapter 12. Sorry, the wind keeps taking my pages here. Back to chapter 12, verse uh, halfway through 23. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. We got a little picture here saying that obviously Jesus' blood has been sprinkled, has been applied to your lives, and now you are forgiven, and that is the mediator, the go-between between you and God. Jesus Christ now stands between you and God and makes a path for you to have intercession with God. But there's a short few words at the end there, and it makes a connection between Jesus' blood 
and that of whose blood? Abel. The first human blood that was ever shed on earth. Maybe you're not familiar with the story of Abel. Turn back with me. You know where it is? Genesis chapter 4. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, please. We're going to take a little look at Abel and his life and how it relates to the blood of our Savior. I hope I'm not, try, I'm not, hope I'm not being too loud. I'm not usually this loud when I speak inside, but I, I don't know. Maybe you can't hear me because of the cars. So I'm just trying to project today. So a quick recap. Genesis 1 and 2. We have creation. God makes this wonderful place. Beautiful garden. Adam and Eve are living in there, right? Makes human beings. Chapter 3. One of the saddest chapters in the Bible. Mankind falls. Sin enters the world, right? But then we see that God takes an animal, sheds the blood of that animal to make clothing, to make covering for Adam and Eve. The first sacrifice. He takes Adam and Eve, removes them from the garden, puts around his angels with a flaming sword to protect the garden. Adam and Eve have been banned from the garden. They cannot go in back to the Garden of Eden, the most beautiful place in the world. Because what's at the center of the garden? The tree of life. And the Lord does not want man in their fallen sinful state to partake in that tree of life because then we would forever be stuck in our sinful bodies. It's, it's horrible. God actually allows us to pass away so that we can be reborn, have new bodies in heaven. So God puts his angels around it to protect the camp. That's chapter 3. Now chapter 4, we get Adam and Eve. They come together and they have some kids. They have one boy named Cain, one boy named Abel. Now let's start picking up in verse 2. All right. Uh, yeah, so verse 1 and 2, Adam and Eve give birth to two boys. All right, halfway through verse 2. Now Abel, all right, one of the boys, kept flocks. And Cain worked the soil. So we got one boy, he's a shepherd. He's got sheep. And the other one, well, he's a gardener. He's a farmer. Working the soil. Producing crops. Both are very noble things. Very good things. In the course of time, Cain, remember the farmer, brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So right here, we see that the two boys, did they know about the Lord? Yes, they most certainly did. And I believe that they've probably even seen the angels around the garden. They have a clear understanding that there is a God. And in fact, we see that Cain even has a Cain in a few more verses has a conversation with God. So they're very well of who God is. Do we know the teachings that God has given to these men about sacrifices? Well, there's not much here told about it, but we do know that there already is a previous recorded time where man had to give a sacrifice. God showed Adam in the garden that when sin is made, there has to be something that dies. 
Something's got to die and give up his life to pardon your sin. Well, what do we see here? Cain takes from his garden some of the best vegetables. Sounds like a very noble thing. Abel brings a lamb. He brings an animal and he sacrifices it to the Lord. And he gives the Lord the best parts. The Lord is pleased with Abel and what Abel brought. But Cain, not so much. And, and a lot of us would say, wait, why, why is he so angry at Cain? Cain, it seems like Cain with great intentions. Seems like he came with giving his best. What he worked hard for. Yeah. But see, God has standards. He has expectation. He has his ways. And who are we to judge what God says, this is what I want? When God wants something in a particular manner, then that's what God wants. Like it or not, He's God. He has the right to do that. We don't have the right to question it. So what happens here? The Lord said to... Uh, sorry. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. And his face was downcast. See, Cain tried to worship the Lord, bring a sacrifice to the Lord his way. God, you're going to accept what I have to offer because that's how I think you should be worshipped. There are people in the world today who get very upset when we say that there is one God, one mediator to God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you say that? There's got to be many ways to get to heaven. There's got to be many ways to please God. Well, no. God has said in His Scripture that there's only one way to get to heaven. And I'm sorry if you believe something different, but you're wrong. I'm not the one who says that. God's the one that says that. I don't get to make the rules. He does. People all over the world today are trying to approach God in the way that they think that God will be happy with it. It doesn't work like that. You don't get to make up how you think God should be worshipped. You don't get to make up how you think you can get to heaven. God makes the rules on that stuff. Like it or not, that's the way it is. You need to come to God with a humble heart and say, God, what do you want of me? What do you expect of me? And whatever it is, that's what I got to do. Because you make the rules. Abel here followed the pattern and the expectations that God had. Cain tried to do it his own way, and the Lord didn't accept it. Did the Lord get angry? Did the Lord yell at Cain? Did the Lord say, you're not forgiving Cain? No, what did he do? The Lord said to Cain in verse 6, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do, sorry, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now right there in itself is a whole series of sermons that we could do, but we don't have time for that. God has given Cain, hey, go fix it. I'll accept you. Just do it the way that I, I'm asking you to do it. Be like your brother. I'm not comparing you to your brother saying that he's better. But go follow what he just did, and I will gladly accept you. 
Because that's my expectations. That's my standards. What happens here in verse 8? Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield his crops for you. You will be relentless and wander the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Right, and there is a, a great story of grace that, you know, and mercy. The, the Lord did not strike Cain down. But what do we see here about Abel? And we just read that how the story of Abel and Abel's blood is a picture of Jesus Christ's blood. That's what we read in Hebrews, right? How is that so? How is Abel a picture and a type of Christ? Well, I'm just going to list out some ways here. Right, the, the obvious one is this. Ready? Abel was a shepherd. He kept sheep, right? What do we know about Jesus Christ? He is our Lord. He is the good shepherd. Is that my mic? There it is. Did Abel give Cain any valid reason for Cain to hate him? Was there any cause for it? No. Cain hated his brother for no good reason. Abel did nothing to his brother. Yet we know this, that Jesus, though given no cause for it, was hated by his brothers. His own people, the Jews, hated him. What did Jesus ever do for the Jews? Only great things, right? He healed their sick, healed the blind, Spoke God's love to them and their truth. Yet they hated him for it. He was light in the darkness. Yet the darkness hated it. Didn't want it. See, Cain was jealous of his brother Abel. And it was out of envy that Cain killed his brother. Why did the Jews kill Jesus? But one, because it was foretold right in Scripture that this would happen. But we know very clearly that the religious leaders, they were jealous of Jesus. Envious of Jesus. Jesus was getting all the attention. All the crowds were going to Him. All the excitement was happening around Jesus. And they hated it. Especially when Jesus took Scripture and quoted it back to the Jews and made them look bad for it. They hated that. They were so jealous of him. 
Cain was jealous of his brother that Abel's sacrifice was accepted and his wasn't, and he killed his brother for it. Likewise, the Jews killed Jesus. The religious leaders spurred on this crucifixion, chanting and crying it out because they were jealous of Jesus. Abel did not die a natural death, did he? There's nothing about murder that's natural. He didn't die of old age. He didn't die of disease or sickness. Likewise, our Lord, right? 33 years old. That's not old age. His life was taken from, well, he gave his own life, but his life was hung on a cross in an unnatural way. Abel met a violent end at the hand of his brother. That he was beaten to death. You know, weapons hadn't been invented yet. What was there in need of a weapon yet? There was no hatred in the world yet. This is the first case of hatred between Cain and Abel. And he said that he beat his brother, attacked him. Jesus Christ met a very violent end. There was nothing peaceful about his, his passing. They beat him, they struck him, nailed him to a cross, stuck a spear in his side, broke his... Oh, they didn't break any bones. All right, it, it was not a peaceful end. They whipped him. The offering that Abel presented was an offering to God, and it was an offering... That was an excellent one, right? God was very pleased with what Abel brought him. Jesus Christ brought himself as his own sacrifice, and was God pleased with what he brought? Yes, he was. How do we know that God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice? How do we know that God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice? Well, he said it, right? I was pleased with your brother's sacrifice, he said. How do we know that God was pleased with Jesus' sacrifice? Did God ever say to the world, Jesus Christ, in words, I am pleased and satisfied with the sacrifice of the cross? Well, we don't see that in words, do we, really? We see other writers write about it, but we don't see God himself say it. But where do we see God say, maybe not in words, but in action, that he is fully satisfied with Jesus Christ's sacrifice? Where do we see that? Three days later. At the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If God was not satisfied with Jesus' crucifixion and the torment that he went through and the wrath that he endured, if God was not satisfied and completely um, felt that it was atoned for, why would he raise Jesus back from the grave? He, in bringing Jesus back to life, said to the whole world, I am fully satisfied. My wrath is fully met and I am content in that sacrifice. That's his way of verbally telling us that he's happy with it. Hebrews 11.4 By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. And by faith he was commended as righteousness. See, Abel was a righteous man. Do we ever read about anything that Abel did wrong? 
No. Now, that did, did Abel have the sin nature in him? Certainly he did, right? Because he was the son of Adam. Uh, did Abel make mistakes growing up? Probably because he's a man. But nowhere here do we see that Abel died because of something wrong that he did. It's recorded here that because of his faith in the Lord, he was accounted in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 as a righteous man. Jesus Christ was the most righteous of all righteous men. He did nothing wrong. Our Lord never made a mistake from age 0 to age 33. His entire life here on earth was a perfect and righteous life. He made him who knew no sin, who knew nothing wrong to be made sin on our behalf. God took our sin, placed it upon him so that we might be saved. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the picture of Abel. In every way, he is better than Abel. His sacrifice was better. His blood was better. He is more righteous. And that's why it alludes to that in chapter 12. I want to finish with two more verses from Hebrews chapter 12. Fingers are getting cold. Verse 24 again. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they were refused him, who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? You see, guys, Jesus Christ and God the Father from heaven are warning us about our sin. Warning us about the destruction that is to come from mankind. Do not cover your ears to the warning. Do not refuse the warning. God is saying to everybody, listen, I gave up my son, allowed him to die for you, to forgive you your sins, to grant you eternal life, and you don't have to do anything for it except believe. Do not refuse that. This day, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't refuse that free gift. It's the best day of your life. Accept what God is giving you, what He is offering to you. Life abundantly. Blessings that He wants to shower upon you. He wants to give you eternal life. He wants to give you a conscience that has been set free of guilt. Knowing that one day, when you pass from this life into the next, you will stand before Him boldly, not in fear, like in the Old Testament, but you'll stand there in joy because Jesus is your Savior. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that because of your Son, one day we will stand before your throne and we will approach it boldly and joyfully 
Because the one at the center of the throne, the sacrifice himself, is Jesus Christ, and he is our Savior. He is our judge, and there is nothing that we need to fear. Lord, we pray for those in the world that do not know him, for they have much to fear. I pray that you would give us the opportunity this week to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ with an unbeliever. May we be a light in our neighborhood, a light in our community for you. May we live a life worthy of your sacrifice. Lord, we ask you in your son's precious name for these things. Amen.